Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I spent 20 years of my life living in the UK. My parents were British, and one of the things I learned from them and from my pretty long time overseas is that you don't find all the good ideas from one side of the political aisle or from one side of the ocean. And that ecumenical spirit goes right to the heart of how do we fix it. We speak with conservatives, centrists, and today we have a guest from the liberal side of the ledger who has some serious concerns about the future of our democracy. I know you'll have a lot to say after our interview. <laughs> what, you think? <laughs> Trump, power politics, and the threat to democracy, Daryl West. It's really only in the last couple of years when I've seen so many unusual problems that have uh, developed, abuses of power, kind of a weakening of the rule of law that has led me to become alarmed. But I'm actually a short-term pessimist in the sense that I think the next few years are going to be very difficult, but I'm a long-term optimist. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Today we look at threats to our system of government and democracy, whether political, economic, cultural, or the result of new technology. They come in many forms. The rise of populism is one. Presidential overreach is another. We discuss the risks, the challenges, and some possible solutions with Daryl West, author of the new book, Power Politics, Trump and the Assault on American Democracy. Daryl is vice president of the Government Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. He joins us from Washington, D.C. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Well, thank you. It's nice to be with you. It's very easy to blame Donald Trump for what's wrong with American politics today. I have liberal and progressive friends who say that since Trump's election in 2016, they've stopped listening to the news or reading the headlines. Tell us why you think that Trump is only part of a bigger problem. If Trump disappeared tomorrow, most of the problems in terms of threats to American democracy would still be there. Certainly our information ecosystem is very toxic. Uh, there are problems in terms of uh, the way our elections are conducted. 
Uh, one thing I agree with Trump, the system is rigged against ordinary people in a lot of respects. Uh, so that's highly problematic. But the populism and the ultra nationalism that we see in the current period didn't originate with Trump. Uh, it's kind of unfolded over several decades in the United States. If we want to fix the problems of American democracy, we really have to focus at the structural level, both in terms of economics and politics. You say that growing income inequality has played a role in our bitter partisan divides. Why? I mean, income inequality in America is at a 100-year high. I mean, you basically have to go back to the 1920s and 1930s to see the high level of inequality similar to what we see today. And I do think that is in part responsible for the polarization that we're seeing, the extremism and the radicalization, because people feel like they're not doing very well. They feel like the American dream is gone. They feel like uh, their children are not going to have nearly as good of a financial lives as what they themselves have experienced. And in many respects, uh, they are right. And it's a function of tax policy, which in my view has been tilted uh, towards uh, wealthier individuals and corporations. The populist sentiments, which uh, Trump uh, plays to on uh, many occasions originate because people actually are not doing that well. And the technology component also is key here as well. Digital technology has fueled extremism. It's easier for people with views outside the mainstream to find like-minded people and then to kind of surround themselves with those people, which reinforce their extremism. And so we do need to think about how to fix our social media uh, system, uh, because it allows falsehoods to disseminate, extremism to flourish, and it helps people get radicalized in their political views. Let's talk a little bit more about these underlying economic themes, the, the hollowing out of manufacturing jobs, uh, the, the challenges to making a good uh, middle class living without a college degree. We're recording this just after it's been announced that the Biden administration is going to try to use an executive action to wipe off a substantial amount of college debt for people who've taken out loans to get undergraduate and graduate degrees. If we're talking about the, the gap between the prospects of non-college educated people and college educated people, shouldn't it be the other half that's getting um, financial help from the federal government? What I'm, I'm not quite sure I understand how this is gonna uh, help ease the divides in our, in our country today. I mean, there's certainly many people who would consider themselves you know, working class or uh, middle class who need help. So I personally favored the student loan cancellation that Biden announced just because there are lots of students who've gone to college, accumulated tens of thousands of dollars of debt. Uh, their economic prospects are not that good right now. Uh, but you're right. The help should not be limited to college educated people because there are plenty of uh, people who did not go to college who are also uh, struggling economically. In fact, many of those people are probably uh, even more likely to struggle uh, economically. So I do think we need to address our tax uh, policies and our uh, social policies to create more economic opportunity. I mean, I was fortunate. I grew up on a dairy farm uh, in rural Ohio in the 1960s and 70s. So, you know, very much I came from a working class background. But in those days, 
it was actually easier to better yourself because college was inexpensive. Buying the first house was possible. Healthcare uh, didn't expose you to uh, kind of the, uh, the range of expenses that we see today. Young people today are struggling on all those dimensions. So we do need more equitable and fairer policies because of this high level of income inequality that we're seeing right now. Jim mentioned the executive order from Joe Biden that would provide relief for millions of people who have student loan debt. Do presidents today use way too many executive orders? Is it an overreach? Or is this because Congress is simply failing to act to solve major challenges that face the country? It is hard for Congress to do much that is substantial because, first of all, you have to have one party in control of both the House and Senate, and then that party also has to control the presidency, and sometimes uh, that happens. But even today, when Democrats control both Congress and the presidency, it's hard to get uh, much uh, through just because in the Senate and the threat of a filibuster, you need 60 out of 100 uh, votes. So I do think presidents uh, over the last 40 decades increasingly have resorted to executive orders. And this actually does pose a danger to democracy. If you think about the things that actually protect American democracy, most of them actually are not legal protections, but norm protections. Like presidents are assumed to be responsible. They will not abuse their authority. They will not abuse the ability to issue executive orders. There are many areas where presidents can declare a state of emergency and kind of rule by fiat in those particular areas. And Congress cannot override what the president does. If you have a poorly intentioned or irresponsible president, both the ability to abuse executive orders as well as emergency power declarations are are very problematic and certainly very uh, threatening to long-term democracy. You mentioned the filibuster, the, the rule in the Senate that effectively means you have to have 60 votes for legislation to move forward. Do you worry that in the hands of a another, let's say, a Trump-like president who who has a, a thin majority rather than a large majority in the Senate, that the absence of the filibuster might lead to some pernicious actions that might not be so good for, for the future of our country? Uh, sure. Uh, there certainly could be abuses if we just have pure majority rule in both the House and the uh, Senate. And, and there could be uh, problems that arise from that. But I think the thing that I worry about right now is public cynicism. Like people believe government is not effective in solving problems. And this creates problems both for Republican as well as Democratic presidents. And so I think our system is skewed too far in the direction of paralysis and gridlock and not being able to address the structural economic and political problems that we face today. So I'm willing to run the risk that a thin majority might overreach and on the assumption that they then would be penalized in following elections if they get too far away from a public opinion, just in order to make the system more effective. Because if our system cannot solve the problems that people care about, people actually are going to reduce their support of democracy. They will start to turn to authoritarian leaders who will say, hey, our system is completely screwed up. Uh, I'm the guy who can really fix this, uh, even if it's through authoritarian means. 
I'm going to ask a question that maybe Jim would like to ask, which is that uh, Trump is a right-wing populist. But could you see in our very fractured, divided nation a left-wing populist who's also a threat to democracy? Yes, they're both liberal and conservative authoritarians. Uh, you look around the world and there are plenty of examples of both of them. Right now, the particular threat that I worry about is really conservative authoritarianism. But down the road, that may change in the United States. And certainly uh, there are risks of progressive authoritarianism in various countries around the world. Part of the title of your book, Daryl, is Trump and the Assault on American Democracy. In what ways is Trump, as opposed to these other trends you discuss, a unique threat? Trump is a unique threat just because when he was president, he demonstrated the ability to really push the boundaries in so many uh, different areas. Having a very expansive view of executive privilege, uh, which limited the ability of Congress to engage in oversight, like you know, there were congressional hearings, they would call Trump officials to come up and testify, and people either refused to testify, or if they showed up, uh, they would plead executive privilege and basically not answer any questions. And so it made it difficult for our system of checks and balances to actually check uh, executive authorities. So Trump did not create the problems that I think are most serious in terms of American democracy, but he did reveal the limits of our current systems based on checks and balances. Let's turn next to the recent FBI seizure of classified documents at Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. The raid was controversial, but the law is really not in dispute. The Presidential Records Act was passed in Congress in the 1970s after Watergate, and the law made it clear that presidential files belong to the people, not to former presidents. When a president leaves office, they become the property of the National Archives. What's your take on Trump's attitude to government property? I mean, Trump seems to have this royal view that he is the state and whatever he does is legal because he's a president. And, you know, we don't want any president to act in that way. But particularly in issues involving national security and classified documents, it's like we have to be really careful to obey the laws on that. I mean, we've seen, you know, some of the indications of the types of records that, uh, that Trump had in Florida that basically relied on human intelligence, uh, human agents that were uh, operating. Uh, and the fact that he took those documents to Florida and they were not subject to the normal controls, you know, puts those individuals at risk. I mean, either he could be talking about that kind of information to other foreign leaders now, he could be putting lives uh, at risk. So in the national security area, when presidents push the boundaries in the way that uh, Trump has, it does raise enormous security problems. The message in your book is pretty alarming about the challenges that threaten to undermine our republic. You describe a perfect storm of challenges, including uh, threats to the economy, our culture, our technology. And I just wondered about whether you're hopeful in some areas, whether you think things can be turned around. Well, it's funny. I, in general, am an optimist, and I actually have been always optimistic, even about our political system, uh, 
in uh, past years. It's really only in the last couple of years when I've seen so many unusual problems that have uh, developed, abuses of power, kind of a weakening of the rule of law that has led me to become alarmed. But I'm actually a short-term pessimist in the sense that I think the next few years are going to be very difficult, but I'm a long-term optimist because in the longer run, defined as like 10 years and beyond, there's going to be profound political change in America because we know the demography of the country is changing. By 2045, if you add up the number of African-Americans, Latinos, and Asians, they will be a majority. That is going to completely transform our politics. So things that seem impossible now, like getting rid of the Electoral College, I fully expect to take place at some point 10 years and beyond. Addressing income equality, I'm more optimistic there uh, that in the longer run, we'll have fairer and more effective tax policies. Uh, the views of young people on taking climate change uh, seriously and uh, kind of looking at past injustices, uh, there's a stronger view there compared to senior citizens. So if you add all those things together, I think that some of the problems that seem very difficult, very challenging, and almost intractable now are not going to be. But I do think getting through the next 10 years, it's going to be a big challenge. We're speaking with Daryl West, author of Power Politics. Our podcast is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's talk a little bit about solutions because you have a long list in your book. And I think the gravest thing that we're all worried about is the idea that a future President Trump or some other president might attempt more successfully to hijack the system of vote counting as was attempted on January 6th. And there is a, a bill in the Senate now, uh, the Electoral Count Act, introduced by Senator Manchin and Senator Susan Collins of Maine, that specifically addresses this. But you you mentioned in, in your book the need to to reform the existing legislation, which is rather vague on exactly how the votes get counted and and the need to put to rest the idea that the vice president could somehow refuse to accept votes and throw the whole thing back to some chaotic process in the individual states. 
I mean, the big problem we face at the presidential level is just this archaic mechanism called the Electoral College. So a lot of the problems that we have seen uh, in the last couple of years uh, kind of come from that. So I think we need to get rid of the Electoral College, have direct uh, popular uh, voting. But since we have the Electoral College, there's a lot of ambiguity in terms of how it operates, how the states certify their electors, Who's, who does the certification? Is it the Secretary of State, the governor, or the state legislature? There are still ambiguities in terms of the role the vice president plays, like Trump wanted Pence to basically unilaterally throw out the ballots from uh, states where Trump argued there had been fraud. As long as the current legislation is vague and we don't know who is responsible for what, it creates great potential for mischief and could actually lead to a constitutional crisis. Just to be clear, it'd be very difficult to get rid of the Electoral College, wouldn't it? It would certainly be impossible to get rid of the Electoral College now. But I do like to remind people that we should not adopt a static view of American politics because just given demographic change and generational change, American politics is going to look very different 10, 15, and 20 years from now than it seems right now. Things that seem completely impossible now, I actually think will be possible 10 years from now. So you're saying that even though you favor uh, the abolition of the Electoral College, we should really f first fix some of the problems of the Electoral College. That, that's, a, that's a difficult message. As long as we have the Electoral College and it dictates who the next president is, we certainly have to clarify the current ambiguities and remove the possibility of political mischief taking place. But my longer term goal would be to get rid of the Electoral College because a lot of these issues pop up because of that. Because if you have direct popular voting, like it doesn't matter if Arizona or Georgia has some local problems or local political mischief, it's the votes will get counted the way they get counted. If you read the Federalist Papers, which I'm sure you know a lot better than I do, there was a lot of suspicion on the part of the founders of direct popular vote and a lot of institutions put in place to try to temper the, uh, the immediate populist will uh, of the electorate. But this theme of being careful about giving the electorate too much immediate power to make major changes really runs through the structure of our government. Were they wrong about that? Well, you have to keep in mind the political context in which they were operating, where women did not have the right to vote. We had slaves, and they obviously did not have the right to vote. And in a number of local jurisdictions, you actually had to own property in order to vote. So. I'm not sure exactly what voter turnout was in those first few elections, but it was probably less than 10% of the people who today we would consider eligible. You know, they didn't trust uh, public opinion and they worried that uh, things would get out of control. But the whole basis of American history has been moving towards greater inclusion. So we gave women the right to vote. Minorities got the right to vote. We lowered the voting age to 18. And in recent years, we've actually made uh, voting easier through mail balloting, early voting periods, and so on. And what we saw in 2020 is if you actually make voting easy, people will vote. I mean, we actually had a record turnout. It was actually a big success of the 2020 election, which a lot of people have uh, forgotten about. Uh, you know, we had almost 70% of the people uh, voting. Personally, I am reluctant to accept the views of the founders 
on this particular item because they were wrong on slavery. They're wrong on women not having the right to vote. And so why do we allow their views from more than 200 years ago to dictate what happens today when clearly many of the things they believe we would not accept? Let's talk about one or two other uh, fixes or solutions. One of the biggest casualties in recent years is the decline of trust in public institutions almost across the board. How do we fix that? It's basically all institutions. Like it's not just politicians who we mistrust, but we don't trust journalists. We don't trust academics. We don't trust experts uh, anymore. And the, the thing that I think drives mistrust on the part of the general public is they see, like particularly in terms of the political system, a system that just doesn't function very effectively. And so if we really want to improve trust, we have to improve the ability of our political system to operate. So I do think there needs to be political reform. Gerrymandering is a huge problem. Like ideally, we want a system where if a party gets 52% of the vote, they should get 52% of the seats in Congress and 52% of the uh, seats in state legislatures. That's not the case because of gerrymandering. You know, the system is kind of uh, rigged uh, against Democrats uh, in uh, a lot of different places. We have a system now where the Supreme Court has been captured uh, by conservatives. Uh, They're making decisions that run contrary to two-thirds or or more of Americans in key policy areas. It's going to be hard to restore trust unless we have a political system that's more accountable and more representative and has a strong ability to actually get things done. Speaking of institutions, uh, one relatively new institution in our society is the enormous power of our social media giants. How do we address the problem of polarization being driven by by social media without, in some ways, undermining the First Amendment? I mean, social media platforms have no legal liability for anything that happens on their platform. That was a function of 25 years ago when uh, uh, Congress was uh, passing legislation in this area. They basically exempted digital firms from the right for other people to sue them if bad things happen on their platform because you know it was a new sector we weren't sure exactly how or whether we should uh, regulate uh, technology at that point in time so we basically gave them a free pass and just to see how the technology developed we're no longer talking about marginal industries like these tech companies are extremely powerful but they still don't have any legal liability i think they would be more responsible about disinformation and misinformation and extremism and calls for violence if they could be sued. Like every other part of American society, there's accountability based on the legal system. So let's look at an example from overseas, something that we Americans do all too rarely. Sometimes other countries have solutions that should be considered here. For instance, on big tech, the European Union has increased regulation. Can we learn lessons from Europe about this? I think the European Union is handling technology better than we are. They're more focused on protecting people's privacy, uh, which with the exception of states like California, in general, the United States has not adopted appropriate legislative solutions there. So I think this is an area where we can learn uh, from other uh, countries. 
uh, over the last 40 years, America has basically had a libertarian stance on the tech sector where we basically have not regulated them hardly at all. You know, these big companies have a dominant market position. Uh, there's evidence they have abused their positions, engaged in predatory practices, uh, engaged in unfair uh, business uh, practices. So we just need to do a better job of promoting competition. It's actually a very conservative idea. Jim, we won't get any disagreement on that, right? Well, it's interesting. You, you'll hear a lot of people on the right who are also, you know, very uh, uh, concerned about the power of of these organizations. They come at it from the opposite side. I mean, there's a lot of furor right now over Mark Zuckerberg's disclosure that the FBI gave Facebook a call and asked them to suppress the news story about some of the revelations contained in the Hunter Biden laptop back during the last election. I'm sure we all remember this. And certainly for me, as a as a libertarian-ish free speech advocate, the idea that the federal police would call a major, in a sense, a major news disseminator, perhaps the most powerful one in the country, and said, "Hey, can you guys sit on this story?" I, I do find that alarming, and I'm I'm looking for solutions too. I'm not quite sure what they are, but what was your take on that? Uh, no, I agree. I, I was very uh, concerned about that, and. and there's kind of a broader issue where the tech companies are making major decisions in a variety of different areas. I mean, you know, we're going to see this in the abortion area where, you know, a state's having outlawed abortion. They're going to go to the tech companies if they think someone has broken the law uh, by getting uh, an abortion. And typically the tech companies turn information over to law enforcement when they get requests. So we're at an interesting period where liberals and conservatives are actually starting to come together and wanting some regulation of the tech sector. One of the things that you suggest in your book, Power Politics, is that people in government and around government should go back to talking more. That's I love the old school quality of that. Explain why you think this is important. People need to talk. I deal with both very liberal and very conservative people. I mean, growing up in rural Ohio, like most of my family are Trump supporters. But then for many years before I came to Brookings, I taught at Brown University, which is a very uh, liberal place. But I've often found like if you can actually talk to people, some of the things that divide people now, it's easier to find common ground, easier to think about solutions. I mean, I find both liberals and conservatives are upset about similar things. The lack of economic opportunity, the way our system is rigged against ordinary people, where they differ is on their solutions to those uh, problems. But we need to have those conversations because we have to get over the polarization that is paralyzing us now and making it difficult to address these uh, fundamental issues. If we're not talking to one another, we will never make progress on these issues. That's a great question and a great answer. Thank you. All right. Well, it's very much the theme of our podcast, you know, is that and it's what I think is part of this boom in people listening to podcasts is is the power of real conversations. And, and you know, as opposed to reading bullet points in some some document. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you. Uh, great questions. And I appreciate the uh, podcast. Daryl West. And next, our recommendation. So, Jim, it was my turn last week, and it's over to you for this episode. What do you got? 
I've been reading a really fascinating book, Richard. It's called The Facemaker, A Visionary Surgeon's Battle to Mend the Disfigured Soldiers of World War I. And it looks at the practice of this extraordinary surgeon, Dr. Harold Gillies, or Gillies. It's British. I don't know how you guys pronounce things. but It's probably, it's probably Gillies. <laughs> probably. <laughs> and it is very, very British throughout. And this man and the team of doctors and other experts he assembled around him was such a visionary. One thing that was u- uniquely horrible about World War I on top of all the other horrors was how many facial injuries people received. You know, somebody would put their head up above the uh, the trench and get get their jaw shot off or get a big hole in their face. I mean, it was absolutely horrific. And a lot of people survived these injuries, and they came home just horribly disfigured. They didn't want to be seen. No one wanted to see them. And this guy spent the war years and the years after developing one innovative plastic surgery technique after another. He realized that the most important thing was to to work slowly. Some of these people would have a dozen, two dozen operations over the course of years. And in many cases, he was able to reconstruct faces using skin grafts from their chests and other parts of their body. And this is, remember, this is the days before antibiotics. So the risks of these procedures was enormous. And it's a wonderful portrait of a, of a real visionary and a truly humane person. The author is Lindsay Fitzharris, What's the name of the book again? The, the name of the book is The Facemaker. Thanks, Jim. Next up, our conversation on Daryl West. Daryl West comes up with some standard liberal solutions to our political crisis, as well as some bipartisan ones. I very much like your question, Jim, and his answer about the need for more vocal communication. We need to talk. We need to listen. I know that I agree with a lot of what he's saying. I suspect you have a different view. Yeah, this is a great example of a great how do we fix it guest because Daryl West is smart and likable and and super well informed. A long career, he's written probably a dozen books about about policy, and yet I disagree with a lot of his his solutions. It's funny. I agree on the top level with some of the analysis of the problems. I do think that polarization is worse. I think that Trump was a particularly acute challenge to our democratic systems. But when it comes to the solutions, to me, they feel like fairly uh, down the middle things that people on the left or the Democratic Party always want. And uh, it often involves concentrating more power in government. So, for example, abolishing the Electoral College. Yeah, it's a messy system, but something that I think a little bit of sand in the gears of presidential elections. As a conservative, I think that's a good thing. I want things to move slower. I want things to move with more deliberation. When it comes to abolishing the Electoral College, that does precisely the opposite of giving more power to the government. It gives more power to the people. And we've had a number of very close-fought elections lately where uh, the popular vote went one way and the Electoral College went the other. And I, th- I don't see any need for the Electoral College. I'd just get rid of it. 
that's a, a completely legitimate argument. The founders thought we should strike a balance between between numerical power and geographic power, and that people living in less populous, more remote states should there there should be a little bit of a counterweight. And I would say the same thing today. If we had a pure popular vote, we might as well just say, okay, California, New York, elect our president. There would be no reason for anybody else to vote. We already have a system that gives a tremendous amount of power to rural states like Wyoming, like Alaska, and that's in the U.S. Senate. We have that. When it comes to electing the president, I just think it should be simple. The, the guy who gets them or the woman who gets the most votes should be the person who is picked by the people to be our president. Yeah, I, it's a good argument. I'm afraid of rapid radical change, and I don't want to dismantle systems like the Electoral College um, uh, abruptly or, or recklessly. Diddle for the filibuster in the Senate. It's a system to make it harder to pass big pieces of legislation. I think that's good. I think too much legislation gets passed. I think we should spend more time and be more careful before we we launch massive new programs on the country, which, which are tend to be very, very hard to undo once they're in place. I agree with you about the filibuster. I agree with you about not packing the Supreme Court. I do think there's a limit to some of the radical changes being proposed that uh, shouldn't go through. But yeah. On the Electoral College, I, I, am, I am in favor. Well, of we, we, yeah, we can debate that. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. How Do We Fix It is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits, also offer media training on audio. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. Jim, you say thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Always the producer, Richard. <laughs> yes, yes. L listeners should really know that Richard does all the real work on the podcast. I just show up and talk for a few minutes. You're just the brains behind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.